You know, sometimes we, as people who know God, sometimes we think, oh, if only such and such a person became a Christian, they'd make a great Christian. Or we sometimes go, oh, and that person seems like there's not much chance that they'll ever become a Christian. It's a little bit presumptuous of us sometimes to think that way, isn't it? Jesus says in here that he had to go through Samaria. Now, he knew as well as everyone else knew there were other ways to get there, but the choice that he made to go there. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do pray that you would enlighten the pages of your word to us as we would consider them together now and help us apply the truth of your word to our hearts and lives in Jesus' name. Amen. See, a little bit of background. Judea was the headquarters of the Jewish religious base. Galilee had more of a Gentile base. Now there was two main ways to, two or three, main ways to get to Galilee from Judea in Jesus' time. One, the cooler, shorter way was through the Judean mountains. Or, the hotter, longer way was through the Judean desert and Perea, and Jews travelling in ancient Israel between Galilee and Jerusalem would mostly take the path through the desert unless they went along another indirect route going west to merge on the King's Highway over towards the Mediterranean Sea or head east out of Jerusalem. So, we know there's about three ways you can probably get there as a pretty much of a guarantee, but you're, it's very clear from reading the Bible that most of them never went the same way Jesus was going. The most direct route, but for a particular purpose. Judea to Galilee was about 70 miles or about two and a half days walk if you went via Samaria. You see, we find Jesus and his disciples going the direct route which was not the normal way that they would do it. And when Jesus said um, he needed to go through Samaria, the Samaritans were what some people called a half-breed. This is more background to the story. It's not a nice expression to say that. Half Assyrian and half from the northern tribes of Israel. Some of the Israelites thought that the Samaritan people were cursed as well as the land was cursed. Even though it was all inside the land of Israel. It's a bit of a strong perspective and persuasion to have on that topic. One of the bigger insults that the Jews hurled at Jesus was to call him a Samaritan. The kind of thing that we would now call, in our society, a racist insult. You're trying to find something that says... The Jews thought they were so much better. And yet, as we'll consider shortly, they had an awful lot in common. It was all inside the same land, but self-righteousness was alive and well back then as well. You see, Jesus crossed many cultural barriers to meet this woman in her need and to show her the way to salvation. History seems to indicate that first century Jewish men generally avoided speaking with women who were outside their families. This practice was especially strict with Samaritan women. It says that his disciples were even shocked when they came back and saw him talking with her. So as we read in there, it says in verse 6, Jacob's well was there 
Jesus, therefore, being wearied from his journey, sat down by the well, and it was about the sixth hour or noon. A woman of Samaria came to draw water, and Jesus said to her, Give me a drink, please. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. Now, there's a whole lot of other stories and other reasons and thinking as to why this Samaritan woman was actually going and getting water in the hottest part of the day. Most of it speaks to the fact that she was not very high, shall we say, on the food chain in current speak as to how people would perceive her and, shall we say, her even her name or lack of a good name or reputation potentially. So... Though some may say that was unusual that he would be talking to a Samaritan woman, he didn't let any societal obstacle stand in his way for his redeeming work. You know, just imagine for a minute that Jesus said, well, none of you lot are good enough for me to bother to waste my time on. None of you Australians are good enough to be able to get into the way of salvation. We won't live out our, our Kiwi neighbours or our, any other relatives or descendants where other countries we've come from, our ancestors. The great news is, and this should excite us all, that the gospel is for all. It doesn't matter where you're from. It doesn't matter whether people don't think you're good enough. It doesn't matter whether you might not think you're good enough. Others might tell you you're not good enough. But it's so important that Jesus could show in such a simple way that he would go and talk to this lady and ask her for a drink of water. doesn't seem like a lot necessarily, does it? Firstly, he's in their area, which the Jews don't go to. Secondly, he's talking to a woman who is, who's not related to him and many of the others think that she's probably less someone you should talk to than someone else like them. And yet, Jesus is doing this and then the disciples come back. Jesus is talking about in here saying, in verse 10 he said, If you knew the gift of God and who it is who says to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, Sir, you've got nothing to draw with and the well is deep. In a, in a very simple answer, you and I would go, you got no cup, you got no bucket, you got no pail of anything to put the water in. You're asking me for a drink. Well, obviously you're going to ask me for a drink because you've got nothing to get a drink with. So you didn't really think about that that well. So there's a whole lot of reasons you'd think about that. And then... The, and then when it says a little bit further in here, he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, you've got nothing to get water. And she said, are you greater than our father Jacob who gave us the well and who drank from it himself as well as his sons and his livestock? And Jesus said to her, whoever drinks of this water will thirst again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never thirst but the water that I shall give him will become in him a fountain of water springing up 
into everlasting life. And you go, well, sounds fantastic. You don't have to buy bottled water, you don't have to make sure it's clean water, it doesn't matter if it's cold water or it's hot water, whatever you want to do with it, you're going to get this endless supply and you and I can see the wheels ticking over and go, oh, geez, this would be good, I wouldn't have to come here and get water every day. I wouldn't have to come here in the middle of the day when nobody would be around, so I wouldn't get humiliated or picked on or whatever else you might like to think of it as, as in a simple way we would understand. But in the scheme of things, when his disciples come back and he, he sort of indicates, well, I don't actually need any food, but they went and bought food. So the disciples come back and I'm just, when I'm reading this, I'm thinking they've got to be scratching their heads in our speak. You said we had to go through Samaria. We don't normally and we never have before, probably. You're talking to a Samaritan woman She's not related to you. And then later on, at the end of the chapter, we'll find that not only this, but they all stayed with the Samaritan people for two days at the end of the chapter. And you go, talking about knocking down walls, about things that would build up by people to say as to what it should or shouldn't be. See, the Jewish leaders weren't interested in what Jesus' message was. They weren't interested in him. Jesus went to a place where you would never think you'd find somebody who'd be interested in, in the message that he would bring and brought that message to them such that a whole heap of people in that village or town or whatever you want to call it then became followers of Jesus as a result of that. Now, the Samaritan lady could very rightly say that Jacob was their father. The Jews normally like to suggest that the Samaritans were not children of God and the obvious questions are, well, did part of the Samaritan ancestors not come out of Egypt as well? Did part of the ancestors also of the Samaritans not also come across the Jordan River into the land flowing with milk and honey? Did some of the forefathers of the Samaritans also not have King David and King Solomon as their leaders? God divided the land into the northern kingdom Israel and a southern kingdom of Judah due to Solomon's great disobedience and idol worship. Now, we know that the northern kingdom, from what the, the Bible tells us, were quicker to worship idols and accordingly were more quickly carried off into captivity. The Samaritan people appear to have come from those who were not carried away into captivity who then intermarried with the Assyrians. The southern tribes also had their turn with idolatry and captivity. And it strikes me so much in, in some of what you read through the Bible that the Jews were proud of being better. Does that ring a bell with any of us? I think we all know some people who think they're better. And let's be honest, sometimes we think we're better. Not just because we have God, but... We're more, pick a topic, we're better at this or we're better for this reason or we've got higher values or we're whatever it might be. Self-righteousness doesn't wash with God. So the Jews had all these things that they could say that they were better than the Samaritans for and yet most of the same things they had in common just as exactly the same other than 
some of their ancestors had behaved differently. But there's plenty of all the Israelites were all um, intermarrying with other groups of people and all worshipping idols as well. You can't say, look at us and how good we are and the halo is up above your head. You can't be doing that. Having broken one law or many laws still keeps you out of God's kingdom. It doesn't matter how many laws you've broken. If you've broken one, you're still out. Isn't that the fact? One law or a thousand laws, your friends might think you're a bit worse because you've broken a thousand. But in God's language, break one law or break a bucket load of laws, you're still not acceptable before God. Let's not be proud of being better than someone. You see, Christ in us is all that makes us acceptable to God. Nothing else. In Titus chapter 3, verses 5 to 7, it says, Not by works of righteousness, which we have done, but according to his mercy he saved us. Through the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us abundantly through Jesus Christ our Saviour that having been justified by his grace, we should become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. You see, are we really any better than the Samaritan lady? Are we really any better before God, without God, I'm talking, than the Samaritan lady was? Because in Romans 3.23 it tells us, For all have sinned and fall short of God's glory. You see, only humans think it matters that we have fallen maybe less short than someone else. We like to get the measuring stick out, don't we? Or the tape measure and go, well, they've definitely fallen well short more than me. There's something we try to do to make ourselves feel better about that. It's not all about us. It's knowing that we don't measure up to God's standard. And importantly, in spite of that, that we do measure up, that we don't measure up to God's standard, it's because of who God is and what Jesus has done that we become accepted in Christ. It's not because of who we are, but it's because of who he is and because of what he's done. Well, in the reading there, the lady changes the subject a little bit. It's not like any of us have ever done that when we're under the pump a little bit to try and change the subject to take the heat off herself. She said, Sir, I can see you're a prophet. Our ancestors worshipped on this mountain, but you Jews claim that the place where we worship is Jerusalem. When she's talking about the this mountain, what she's talking about is Mount Gerizim. Remember that mountain's name, and you may find it a very interesting exercise to go and find other references to that mountain in the Bible. You might remember in the as the land of Israel was becoming or about to become settled, there was a heap of people on Mount Gerizim and a heap of people on Mount Ebal across from there 
And in between there was a valley, loosely where Shechem is or was. So on Mount Gerizim is where the blessings were pronounced across and Mount Ebal was where the curses were pronounced that said, if in fact you do not do these things, God will do this. If you do this, God will bless you. If you do this, God will curse you. And it was very, very clear. So I thought it was very interesting that that's the place where the Samaritans actually worshipped, albeit not the same God necessarily, but the Samaritans were worshipping on Mount Gerizim. Jesus said, A time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. End of the argument. You Samaritans worship what you do not know, we worship what we do know, for salvation is from the Jews. Yet a time is coming and has now come when true worshippers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth, for they are the kind of worshippers the Father seeks. It's the end of verse 23. God is spirit and his worshippers must worship in spirit and in truth. We're talking before about the lady and how she's now tried to a little bit distract from what was going on. You see, it's confronting having somebody point out your flaws, isn't it? We all know we've got them. There's nothing comfortable about being told you've got them. We understand that. But when you stand before God, who sees all and knows all, there's no hiding from that. And we're not just talking about flaws and saying I mightn't have good dress sense or I mightn't be able to do this very well or do that very well. We're talking about the innermost thoughts of our hearts and our minds and who we actually are as people. You see, the woman or the, the women of the town would normally collect water at the end of the day. This Samaritan lady was collecting water in the middle of the day. When Jesus asked her for a drink, he had no way to get a drink. And yet he seemed to be saying, it doesn't matter if I have this water or not because I've got living water. Yet he obviously still needed water to drink. The lady made it clear that he asked for a favour, but instead he spoke about living water. How could anyone be greater than Jacob who gave them the well many hundreds of years earlier? Remember in Jesus' time on earth when they said, oh, our father's Abraham, you say this and rah, rah, and we know who your father, in inverted commas, is, Joseph the carpenter. But saying in the land of Israel to say if you're going to say you're greater than this one or that one of the patriarchs how could anybody be greater than Jacob who gave them this well you see the whole land was named after Jacob so saying Jacob's your father that's a pretty big rap it's, it's like it's like saying your father owns the company or he owns Mercedes-Benz or something he owns something really really important and impressive our father's Jacob and 
he, he dug this well and he's the father, his name actually got changed to be Israel and that's the land we all live in. He's that important. He gave us his well, so you better be very important if you think you're going to be greater than this man who could do that for us. And in the back of our mind you go, oh, living water, how good. Don't have to go and get water every day. It's like when the Israelites after Jesus had fed the 5,000 people. It was like a pop-up restaurant just popping up somewhere. You could just rock up and there was an endless supply of food was going to turn up for you. It was like you could have one of those big, like, we don't have them anymore, but for those of us who are old enough, we'll all remember Sizzler. Our all-you-can-eat scenario was just there. They think when Jesus lobs in, we're going to get fed as much as we want, as often as we want, we'll just go and follow him around. We're going to get living water. How good, we won't have to go and get water every day. You can just see the wheels all turning over in our minds to go, well, this will be fantastic because I won't have to do this every day. We're not thinking, well, what actually is living water? We're just thinking, I don't have to go and get this and I won't get thirsty and I won't have to do the same as work. So Jesus started telling her things then that there is no way that he could possibly know from a human perspective. He hadn't lived all his time in that town or within the same street or neighbourhood, so to speak, of where this lady had lived her whole life. He couldn't know, possibly, that these things to go, well, you've had five husbands and the one you're with now is not your husband. How could he possibly know this stuff? I perceive you're a prophet, she says. And then tries to change the subject. You see, Jesus is talking, and here we look at this and we go, well, there's actually a physical, literal well. There's a well there. There's literally water in it. Over here on the mountain, that's a literal place of worship where the Samaritans worship. Jesus is talking about water, but he's talking about not becoming thirsty, and having living water. What is this stuff? So he then starts talking about worship in answer to her question. True worshippers. So the Jews were saying, well, the Samaritans don't really know who or what they worship, but we do know who we worship because we worship the real God. But what we understand in the benefit of a couple of thousand years later and a Holy Spirit indwelling us as God's people and the full revealed will of God in the, the, the completed Bible that we have, we understand that worship isn't just a location. We understand that worship is not just a thing. Worship is meant to be a part of everything and a part of us and who we are and how we live our life. As he said, God is not just a man, but spirit. And God being spirit and as such being worshipped accordingly in spirit and in truth, Jesus is telling all of this to a Samaritan woman who wasn't one of the most important people around. Now, he just left being down where they had been at the start of the, the time in here as he'd left Judea, 
He wasn't having this conversation with the Jewish leaders or with the ones who thought they were all well taught and the ones who had much to be, in their minds, proud of. He was speaking to somebody of eternal things and about a place for worship and a whole new method of worship. And yet he's telling this to somebody who you would never think he'd be telling it to. How would you understand that? And then when Jesus said to her as well, he said that salvation is of the Jews or from the Jews, depending what you're looking at. You see, in summary, Jesus told the lady that the key to proper worship is doing so in spirit and in truth. At the same time, he confirmed that the Jewish people, unlike the Samaritans, knew whom they worshipped. It seems to generally be understood that the Samaritans only had the Pentateuch or the first five, what we would call the first five books of the Bible. It would seem that that's as much as what the um, the part of the scriptures are that they had from what I can understand from reading many other commentaries and writers. God gave the Jewish people the scriptures. You see, when we're talking about salvation is from the Jews, you go, well, Jesus was born an Israelite, born of an Israelite woman, born under the law that applied to Israel to redeem those who were under the law, being Israel, being the law had been given to. And Jesus alone fulfilled God's law and paid the price that was due under that law. Jesus became accursed under the law by being hanging on a tree. The gospel went first to the Jewish people. There was nobody who wrote most of the Bible, and I do say most very carefully. Jewish prophets wrote under God's hand the Old Testament. All the New Testament authors were Jewish, with the possible exception of Luke. Together, the scriptures tell the story of the God of Israel, his people and his Messiah. The message of salvation has come through the Jewish people to the whole world. So when they say salvation is from the Jews, that's what I'm elaborating on in that part there. You see, nobody but the Jews was looking for a Messiah. Messiah is the Hebrew word for God's anointed one. And Christ is the Greek equivalent to Messiah. I didn't know that when I was getting this ready. So Messiah is the Hebrew word for God's anointed one. Christ is the Greek equivalent to Messiah. You see, Jesus identified in as great himself as the great I am. John chapter 1 tells us that in the beginning was the word. The word was with God and the word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. All things were made by him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. 
It's the end of the um, verse 4 of John chapter 1. See, throughout the Old Testament, others added to his name, I am. I am being translated Yahweh or Jehovah by giving him names that clarified his character. This is based upon either his provision and his miracles. You see, scripture also declares God's names as being one of the ones that we probably most know, Jehovah Jireh, the Lord, my provider. Jehovah Rapha, the Lord heals. Jehovah Nissi, the Lord, my banner. Jehovah Shalom, the Lord, our peace. Jehovah Ra, the Lord, my shepherd, and some more. So, a little while ago, we, in a, in a message, we considered when Jesus could say, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Remember how important we talked about that that was, that Jesus wasn't just saying, I know the way, but I am the way. He wasn't just saying, I tell you the truth, I am the truth. I am not just the one who gives life, I am the life. So when Jesus is the truth, firstly, he can't speak a lie. And we also know that he's testifying to himself before God of who he actually is. So when this dear lady says to him, are you greater? He said, I am. She said, when Messiah comes, he will explain everything to us. Then Jesus said, I, the one speaking to you, I am. So, going on from verse 30 very briefly, in verse 31 it says, In the meantime his disciples urged him, saying, Rabbi, eat. But he said to them, I have food to eat of which you don't know. The disciples then said, did someone bring him food to eat while we were gone? Jesus said to them, my food is to do the will of God, of him who sent me, and to finish his work. Do you not say there are still four months and then comes a harvest? Behold, I say to you, lift up your eyes and look at the fields, for they are already white for harvest. And he who reaps receives wages and gathers fruit for eternal life, that both he who sows and he who reaps may rejoice together. For in this the saying is true, one sow and another reaps. And verse down to verse 39 it says, And many of the Samaritans of that city believed in him because of the word of the woman who testified. He told me all that I ever did. So when the Samaritans had come to him, they urged him to stay with them, and he stayed there two days, and many more believed because of his own word. Then they said to the Samaritan woman, Now we believe, not because of what you said, for we ourselves have heard him, and we know that this is indeed the Christ, the Saviour of the world. So... Jesus ended up actually staying at this at this place for two days. 
As we start thinking about the conclusion of our message this morning, we understand from the word of God that Jesus was no ordinary man. He was absolutely man, but he was no ordinary man. You know, if there's one thing that you'll find out very quickly, if you're ever talking to people who, let's say, don't believe the same things we believe, for want of a better way of saying it, one of the first things that you can find out about is, who do you think Jesus is? That'll be one of the fastest ways you find out what they believe, because every chance they're going to go, oh, he was a prophet, he was a great teacher, he was a good man, he did some miracles. History records that he actually lived on the earth, so he's not made up by people. Oh, he was a son of God? No. He was not equal with God? You'll get all kinds of answers, won't you, if you talk to people. They'll say Jesus was a son of God or the son of God, but not equal with God. But Jesus makes it abundantly clear, as does the whole Bible, that he was fully man and yet he was fully God at the same time. Now, we don't have to be able to explain it. We don't have to be able to understand it 100%. But we do need to recognise that that's what God's claim and Jesus' claim is, that he was, and in speaking to these people, he actually physically lived. He was fully man. He actually died. If he wasn't man, he couldn't have died. Because he, not only one of the the Jews were angry with Jesus, saying, well, he's actually claiming that God's his father. Well, he was actually claiming a lot more than that God was his father. That insulted them that he would consider that he would say God was his father. So Jesus was more than a prophet. Remember in in the Gospels it talks about that he was that prophet in loud capital letters and inverted commas, who would come into the world. So when we think about it, it's really important who Jesus is. And as part of what we're doing is studying part of these things about the statements that he makes in, the, in his life, where we're talking about the things where he's regularly saying, I am, he's very clearly saying that in a way that the Jews more than us would even understand. He was making a claim that he was God. So Jesus went some, through Samaria and won many needy souls. Don't you know the difference between knowing versus believing? You know, well, the lady initially says, how can you ask me this? Then she says, how can you say this? Then she says, are you greater? I perceive. I know that Messiah is coming. Jesus said, I am. And after a little while, she could say, come and see. You see, we now believe not just because of what you said, the people, that later in the, in the last couple of verses we read, it says the people said, we now believe not just because of what you said, now we have heard and now we know that he is the saviour of the world. Now, I don't know about you, but if that doesn't thrill your soul, nothing does. 
because people who were outcast and thought to be outside of any of God's promises got to have this revealed to them and he went and stayed in their place for two days with them. That's very saying you are accepted and you have come to understand. I love that this lady went from being looked down on by everybody to then be actually able to be spoken to by Jesus. He never said it's okay as to necessarily how the person might be living their life. He's never going to say that's okay for you to do that. But he went to the root cause of the problem, didn't he? He didn't just say you shouldn't be doing that. She could go from knowing a little bit about God as a Samaritan, knowing that they were looking for a Messiah to come one day, to then go, I perceive you are a prophet. I know Messiah is coming one day. Are you greater than our father Jacob? Yes, I am. Who is it that's speaking to you? I am he. You see, we have to come to a realisation ourselves about who God is. Hebrews 11 tells us that we must believe who he is and what he says about himself to actually come to know him. You see, God is. It doesn't matter whether we think God is. It doesn't stop God being. For the people who don't believe in God, saying that God doesn't exist doesn't actually make him not be there. So we must believe that God is. God provides living water. See, we have a sin problem and we need God. And we can know him, but even better, he wants to know us. There's a big difference in that between us thinking we know God versus God knowing us. You see, our hope is in our living, risen Saviour Jesus who reconciles us with God and gives us eternal life because he is the life. Is he greater? I am, he said. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for your word. We thank you for the realisation that we can have, that we can know who God is. We can know God personally. God can know us and God can write our names in a book that can never be blotted out because he put them there. We can know salvation. Like this lady who was thought to be unimportant. Like those people who were thought were outside of God's promises. We, as people in the land of Australia, can benefit as anybody in the whole world can, because God says we can, and because God can make it happen, and because we can come to God his way, because he always has been and he always will be. Lord, we thank you, we love you, and we acknowledge that we have no claim upon you, 
but that what you give us. And we thank you, it's the great I am that we talk to. In Jesus' name, amen.